Open your Bibles, if you will, to the 46th chapter of the prophet Jeremiah. We'll study today the whole chapter, verses 1 to 28. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the 46th chapter of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, about Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your army. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backwards. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out. Men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield. Men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its full of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Memphis and Tophanes, say, stand ready and be prepared for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell and they said to one another, Arise and let us go back to our own people, to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Prepare yourselves, baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt. For Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes. Like those who fell trees, they shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable. Because they are more numerous than locusts, they are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. 
The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his afterwards. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing on our study today of Jeremiah 46. You are the Lord and you reign. And so humble our hearts before you that we might learn wondrous things about you from this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 46 begins a series of six chapters after after the story of Jeremiah's ministry has now been told. It goes from chapter 46 to 51, and then the book will end in chapter 52 with a historical recap. Now this section then, known as the Oracle Against the Nations, consists of judgments proclaimed against the unbelieving nations surrounding Israel. It starts with God's judgment on Egypt in chapter 46, and then it's going to hit all the little countries around it before concluding with two chapters of judgment on Babylon, chapters that are picked up in the book of Revelation, it turns out. Now, readers of the Bible, maybe you, as we've done some advanced reading in Jeremiah, we're not looking forward to this portion of our expository series. It just seems like this is dense, maybe obtuse, and what's the meaning that's going to come of this? There's not real value to believers today. I think F.B. Huey is right, though. When he writes that, in part, we think this because the vengeful spirit of these chapter make uncomfortable readers who are conditioned to think of God only as a God of love and forgiveness. Well, that's in part because our faith then calls us to a biblically well-rounded view of God. We need chapters like this because they tell us things about God. We may not like it, but we will grow to understand it and we worship him for who he is. And these oracles of judgment to that extent are very valuable to us. Another reason to take these oracles of woe and judgment seriously is the sheer number of them in the Old Testament. There's tons of them. All but three of the prophets have chapters like this. If you take Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those three books alone, there are 25 such chapters, together containing 603 verses. That's larger than most New Testament books. So it's a significant portion of the Bible. And there's a major message in these passages. In fact, I'm going to argue there's four points. I'll preach four points from this passage. It's going to be an outline of the whole oracles of the nations together. And it's first, that God's word is intended for the whole world, not just for the church. We're going to see how God's word is for the whole world. Secondly, these oracles of judgment highlight that the Lord is sovereign over all the earth. It's going to be highly emphasized in all these oracles. Thirdly, we are reminded that everyone is under God's moral rule and therefore all nations will fall under his judgment unless they repent. 
And then fourth, Judah will discover in these promises of God's retribution against the wicked its own hope of salvation. It's because the Lord will not allow evil to prevail that we have confidence of our own future in his covenant faithfulness. Well, let's look at those four themes one by one in Jeremiah 46. First, it is a prophetic message for the whole world. And it's fitting, I think, that the oracle against the nations appears at the end of Jeremiah because it bookends a promise made to Jeremiah at the very beginning of the book. In chapter 1, remember long ago, Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah's an adolescent probably. And the Lord appears to him and he appoints him with these famous words. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. And then says, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It wasn't a prophet just to Judah or to Israel. He was appointed, predestined to be a prophet to the nations. And we tend to think of Jeremiah and the other prophets as messengers to the covenant people, Judah and Israel, and they certainly were. But from the very beginning, his message is intended for the entire world. And so while a great bulk of his preaching is in Judah and for Judah, the time needed to come for the Lord through Jeremiah to address the nations. Now, until Jeremiah was taken against his will out of Judah into Egypt, He had spent his entire life within the geographical bounds of Israel. There's one exception. Back in chapter 13, you may remember, God sent him on a rather arduous trip to the Euphrates River where he buried a a loincloth. Came all the way back to Judah, waited six months, went all the way back and he dug up the loincloth and brought it back and he preached a sermon from it. That's part of the way prophets preach. It was a message about the exile and restoration of Judah. And so with that exception, though, it seems like he had never left Judah, uh, never left Israel until he found himself in Egypt. And yet even so, everything that he preached in Jerusalem to the people of Judah was of the greatest significance for the whole world. Even when he wasn't addressing the world, he's a prophet to the nations. I think in chapter 27, I hope you remember that Nebuchadnezzar was busy on the other side of his empire. And so foolish King Zedekiah, he calls a summit of all the local powers. Many of the nations, all the nations, in fact, are mentioned in these oracles. And they're going to see if they can rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And remember this in chapter 27, in the, in the midst of their, of, their, of their council, Jeremiah bursts in with an oxen yoke on his shoulders, this big whopping wooden metal thing, and he throws it on the conference table. And he says, uh, the, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar is put on you by God. Now, dare I say that message was relevant not just to Judah, but to Edom and Moab and Tyre and Sidon all those other countries as well. Well, those nations now are going to be addressed directly in these concluding chapters of Jeremiah. From the beginning, Jeremiah 1.10, he had been commissioned over nations and over kingdoms, so he had important things to say to them. And so Jeremiah 46.1, it turns out, is a heading, not just for this chapter, but for the whole section. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations now these oracles together with his calling to speak to the nations reminds us that the bible my friend the bible is for everyone the bible is not just for believers 
It's for every person, the entire world. The whole world needs to hear God's word as it speaks about God and man and sin and redemption of judgment and salvation. Yes, political leaders need the Bible. They need to consult the moral standards of Holy Scripture. And when they don't, it creates chaos in their society. They need the wisdom that comes from the Holy Scriptures. If Christians believe the Bible is the word of God and that it is true, and if we don't, we're not believers, then it contains a message about history that everyone needs to learn about. The entire human race, in fact, is involved. Since God created mankind, he determined our nature. Well, then what the Bible says about human dignity and identity, about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl, male and female, what it means, what, what is the institution of marriage? How did God design it? How does it work? What's the family? You see, if the world doesn't hear this, it will descend into the chaos that we are descending to as a culture at this very moment. If it's true, especially that underneath all the problems of this world is the fall the rebellion of sinful man against God and the corrupting and condemning effects of that. By the way, Genesis 3 says that's what's going on in the world. You say, you know, Pastor, I feel like something's wrong with the world. The answer is sin. It's the fall of mankind. It's the rebellion that starts at the, nearly the beginning of the Bible. That being the case, it is neither wise nor loving or helpful for us to pretend that secular competing narratives are equally valid. I don't have to tell you that our secular humanistic culture today is pressing the idea that religion must be a strictly private matter. That's a huge area of emphasis today. Your religious views have no bearing, and they have to be kept out even of the discussion of public morals and policies. Now, let me just point out that secular humanism itself is a religious view. So what they're really saying is that our religious view is, estab- is the established religion of this culture, and you must bow, your religion must bow to it. I think that's not one we can accept. The whole idea that religion should be kept out of discussion fails to realize that they're operating under deeply religious convictions. But furthermore, the Christian message, the Christian faith, has never, ever been designed as a strictly private matter for our individual lives only. The New Testament utterly rejects the notion that, you know, on Sundays and my private feelings and devotions, I'll be Christian and I'll be secular the rest of the time. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Uh, Take this chapter. Jeremiah outlines God's judgment that's going to fall on the nation of Egypt in two devastating military defeats. And dare I say, the public relevance of this material, of this religious teaching was displayed when the events happened, when the soldiers were slain, when the power of Egypt was broken and shattered. The same is true of the whole Bible. The Bible tells a history from God that will end in the return of God's Son and a final judgment that will send every single person either to heaven or down to hell. That's what the Bible says is really going on in this world. This is where it's really headed and if that is true and dare i say that the fulfillment of the many prophecies of judgment in jeremiah suggests very strongly that the bible is true then those warnings need to be heard by everyone because it's going to happen to them 
Now, especially when it comes to the Bible's central message of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who alone offers salvation through faith in his atoning blood, this gospel must be told to everyone. The church must not privatize its religion, must not silence itself. There must not be a bushel placed over the light of God's word. It is to be set on a hill. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And his no one demands that everyone be told that Jesus is Lord. So the truth of God's word and its relevance to every person and nation means that if we love our fellow man, if we are patriotic towards our respective countries, that we Christians and the church are obliged to proclaim the scriptures publicly, insisting that they are relevant and necessary for every sphere of human life and activity. That's the first thing we see in this oracle. Now, secondly we see the declaration that the Lord is sovereign over all the nations. The reason he spoke to all nations is he spoke on behalf of a God who is the sovereign Lord of all nations. And so of all the themes that are going to be highlighted, not only in this chapter, but in all of these oracles against the nations, the, the most prominent will be the universal sovereignty of the true and living God, the God of Israel. Now, in the ancient world, most people thought of their gods as local, regional deities, and and they had their interests and their deals they cut out in their land, but they didn't bother with anything outside of that. But among these false gods stands the true God, the God who made the heaven and the earth, the one who exercises sovereignty over it all. Philip Ryken notes, his sovereignty is not limited to a single culture, nation, or ethnic group. He literally has the whole world in his hands. And this is why our chapter, Jeremiah 46, can give such an accurate description of the Egyptian military. Look at verse 3. The buckler and the shield were carried by their warriors. The buckler was a small round shield that went on the arm. The shield is a big shield that covers a body. Go to the British Museum in London. Really, I love the place. Go there and look at the Bos reliefs, the actual things they built at the time commemorating Carchemish. You'll see exactly what the Bible shows. Then. And how did God know that? Because he is the Lord of all. He knew that Pharaoh's army was consisted almost completely of mercenary bands from Cush and Put and men of Lud who were skilled in handling the bow. Verse 9, he, he calls out the name of the leading cities in northern Egypt, Migdal, Memphis, Tophanes. He knows that even in coming years, the man who is going to be Pharaoh is going to be considered a boasting loudmouth and that behind him, people are going to make fun of him and give him names because of it. The very thing we see in verse 17, noisy one who lets the hour go by. Now, how could the God of this small tribe nation of Judah have such detailed information about affairs far away in, in Egypt some of which had not even happened yet. Well, the answer is that he is the Lord. He is sovereign, and that includes his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence. Hebrews 4.13 is right. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He is sovereign over all. Now, all of these oracles addressed to these nations will make the point that God's will determines what happens. That's what we mean when we speak of the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign lordship. 
H.B. Huey comments, God is in control of history, not just Judah's history, but the history of all nations. And Jeremiah 46 opens up with a description of the Battle of Carchemish in that fateful year, 605 B.C., the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. How many times have we read? In the fourth year, 605 is a huge date in the ancient world, in large part because of the Battle of Carchemish, uh, in which uh, the Egyptian army is smashed. And it's not clear whether he's reporting this event after it <coughs> or before it. Excuse me. But what is mentioned here, what's emphasized, is it's God's will that determined what happened. That's what is meant by his lordship. Look at verse 10. The Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. It was God's will, yes, God's sovereign control, that determined the outcome of the battle of Calchemish. In, In verse 10, the word... Lord is Adonai. Usually in your Hebrew, in your English Bibles, when you see Lord in small caps, that means it's actually the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. It's Yahweh. In this case, look at verse 10. It's Lord God, and God is in small caps. That means that that's the tetragrammaton. That's Yahweh. What is Lord? It's Adonai. The word means master, overlord, despot. The sovereign Yahweh, the, 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 the master who is the Lord. It is the sovereignty of God, yes, over the battle of Carchemish. Likewise, the second episode in chapter 46 foretells Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of Egypt. I think it's probably it's actually different candidates, but I think it's most likely 568, when, uh, which was another Egyptian military catastrophe some years later. And there, look at verse 15, Egypt's mighty ones fall to the ground. Why? Because the Lord thrust them down. Are you saying, Jeremiah, there's this battle, the history writers write about it, and and when when their forces were destroyed and fell down, you're saying it was God controlling that? Yes. Yes. That's the whole point. He is a sovereign Lord over all. This is the message to Egypt and the other nations. The sovereignty, the overlordship, of the true and living God over all the earth. In this chapter, God is having Jeremiah answer the summons of Psalm 96.10, say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Not only does Jeremiah 46 declare that God is sovereign, his, his will is determining in advance what's going to happen. He's the one controlling these human events but also the meaning of these human events is determined ultimately by their relationship to the Lord. That's a huge issue in this chapter and in all these chapters. Walter Brueggemann writes that Jeremiah portrays the process of public power as a process under a larger purpose and not as an end in itself. Now, what does he mean? He means that what was happening is not what they thought was happening. It it was not Nebuchadnezzar's aims that were being fulfilled. Oh, they would be, by the way, mostly for the most part. It wasn't, it's God. God's doing it, and it's for his purposes. And the meaning of Carchemish is found in its relationship to the will of God. And the same is true for us, even us individually. Don't we tend to think of our lives in various ways? Many of us, particularly men, we see our lives. Tell me the story of your life. It's going to be the story of career advancement. I, I climbed the ladder. I started out in the mail room. I ended up the purchasing director. And it's a story where I got to the top and then I was embittered because there was nothing there. 
how many CEO biographies say that. That's how we think of our life. The meaning of my life is I rose up the career chain. Or we think in terms of family relationships. Let me tell them the meaning of my life. Well, I have these children. I have these cousins. I have these grandchildren. That's my life. Or or maybe I I amassed wealth. It's my portfolio. My amassment of wealth and power and influence. Well, the Bible says the real meaning of your life is determined by your relationship to the true and living God through either faith or unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the real issue. He is sovereign. And so the true meaning of our life is in our relationship with him and our relationship to his redemption through Jesus Christ. Do we believe the Bible? Are we living in accordance with God's word? That's what matters. Have we made common cause with the church of Jesus Christ? Are we playing our work in the the calling of the church for the spreading of the gospel in this age of the world? That's what matters. Not the the listed price of your house, not the kind of car you drive, not the name on your doorpost plate you see the verdict here on egypt is found in two military calamities but my friends the verdict on our life will be given at the final judgment when jesus has returned and the books are opened and we will stand before the sovereign lord on his throne in eternity the ultimate meaning of every one of our lives will be determined either by faith or unbelief in the lord jesus that's what it's going to come down to Faith in Christ yielding forgiveness and justification through faith. Unbelief yielding wrath and eternal condemnation from an angry God. And that leads us to the third made theme of our chapter and of all these oracles, which is the divine retribution in judgment upon the wicked. And God has judged his own people throughout much of Jeremiah. And you know, he's been using other nations, mainly Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's doing it for his purposes. He's doing it for my purposes, says the Lord. And I'm using him. And yet these nations that afflicted Israel, they had to be called to account for their sins as well. John Mackay writes, these nations who attacked the covenant people drew down upon themselves the wrath of the covenant overlord who'd committed himself to protect and defend his own people. And like Judah, these nations, Egypt in our case today, were accountable to God and his unchanging moral code, which they flagrantly violated through sin. People say, you know, the Ten Commandments don't apply to me because I don't believe in God. Well, he doesn't really, in that respect, it doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. He is, and the Ten Commandments are his moral code, and the judgment is happening. And you, everyone, every nation, at any time, every person will be judged for sin in violation of God's holy law. John Mackay writes, nations which did not honor divine standards of conduct will be judged for their behavior. The pretensions of every nation come to the, under the authority of the Lord of all the earth. Now, that's what this chapter is about when it comes to Egypt. Verse 2 says about Egypt. And, and why was Egypt first? Well, probably for a couple of reasons. First, it's one of the big players. You've got Babylon. They come last. Egypt's the other big nation. But also, Jeremiah's in Egypt. And you may remember in chapter 44, it ends with a statement of judgment against Egypt. And so now we turn. That was a, Jeremiah 44.30. And so Jeremiah 46 is going to show how that promise of judgment against Egypt is fulfilled first in the Battle of Carchemish, 605 BC, and then in a later invasion of Babylon into Egypt, 
568 B.C. Both accounts contain a record of calamity and also a scornful mocking that is designed to reduce Egypt to shame. Well, let's look at the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, it begins with voices summoning the Egyptian host to battle. By the way, this is top-grade Hebrew poetry we're reading here. This is really superb stuff. And he hears them crying out, prepare buckler and shield, advance for battle, harness the horses, mount, O horsemen. And so it's the cry in the Egyptian camp. But they, they form their ranks for battle. They, their armor's on, their spears are sharpened. But as soon as the enemy appears, they're, they're put into dismay and panic. And Nebuchadnezzar, history records, made an overwhelming assault that broke the Egyptian lines. And we read in verse 5, they are dismayed, have turned backwards. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back, terror on every side. They're running for their lives, which is not good in ancient battle. It's a rout, and that usually means massive casualties. Verse 6, the swift cannot flee away, nor the warriors escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. That's the record of Carchemish. Now, the second account, telling of a later Babylonian invasion of Egypt, bears a similar result. It begins in the chief cities of the lower Nile, that's northern Egypt. Verse 14, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. And again, the clash of weapons leads to an immediate collapse. Verses 15 to 16, why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And these mercenary bands, they're forgetting about their paycheck. Now they're just fleeing for an escape. Verse 16, arise, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. And as they flee, they throw out scornful rebukes in the direction of Pharaoh. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one, who lets the hour go by. It might be translated big mouth. What they're meaning is he promised victory, but he had not the slightest idea how to actually achieve it. Now, in both halves of Jeremiah 46, Egypt's defeat is explained as God's judgment against this nation. That's, what, that's the message. God judges the nations. And the reason is found in verses 7 to 9. It's a picture of overweening pride that has led to the fall. Look at verses 7 to 9. Who is this? rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy the city and their inhabitants. Now that perfectly fits the entry of Egypt into the world affairs in the latter years of the 7th century B.C. And the reason was, prior to that, they were actually weak, and the Assyrian Empire was so vicious and strong and nasty that they just didn't even want to be involved. But in the later years of, of 1615, 612, the Babylonians had attacked, and they'd captured the Assyrian capital. And Assyria is going down under Nebuchadnezzar, and Pharaoh says, you know what, we can get involved. The Nile's going to rise. You can see the T-shirts, the rising tide of the Nile. And we're going to go, our waters are going to spill over the whole earth, and we're going to hire mercenaries. Actually, there's some Greek hoplites we know in the army. And we're going to march up there, and we're going we're to enter the scene of, of, of public affairs, and Egypt's going to be heard again. That's, that's what's being said here. It's exactly what happened. 
Uh, actually, Pharaoh Necho was concerned about the collapse of Assyria. Why? They used to hate the Assyrians, but now they're more afraid of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so in 609, he marches the Egyptian army up the coastal road, and he's going to actually help the Assyrians to try to create a buffer state between their neck of the woods and Mesopotamia. And it's in 609 that godly King Josiah takes out the Judean army, tries to stop them. As the Battle of Megiddo, Josiah is slain, and the Judeans are, are, are defeated. And so uh, Pharaoh Necho takes his army up to the Euphrates for four years. He's operating there alongside the, the remnants of Assyria. And then in 605, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, the time has come, and the Battle of Carchemish utterly destroys the, and breaks the Egyptian might. And according to verse 10, this defeat was God's judgment on the pride of Egypt and Pharaoh. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. It's very interesting that that language is used because many people today will say, you know, biblical judgment's not retribution. It's not punishment. It's certainly not vengeance. That's unworthy of a loving God. It's just sin naturally working out. Well, sin does naturally work out. But the Bible says that biblical judgment is retribution. It is the vengeance of a wrathful God. Sin is a personal affront to God that that gets the anger that brings retribution. It's the very language. He's going to avenge himself on his foes. And so the day has come for Egypt to be paid back for its many abuses against Israel, going all the way back to the Exodus, for its sins against God and for its pride it's idolatrous pride uh, their pride centered on pharaoh remember pharaoh if you know anything about egypt he was one of the gods and uh he, he, they, they they worshiped him and probably i think verse 15 is speaking of the egyptian gods and idols when it says the mighty ones face down since the lord thrust them down well my friend sinful mankind today continues to be plagued with the central sin of pride. As we push, we refuse God's lordship over our our lives, our, our, our way of thinking, our way of living. We claim his place. That is pride. We pretend we may govern ourselves without obedience to his word. Let me say to you, if you have not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then pride is your chief sin. You are denying the creator and Lord the worship he deserves and demands. St. Augustine in City of God noted that just as humility is the chief virtue that God loves to see among his people, it's the, it's the thing that you would say describes Jesus the most. So also, he says, pride, that vice contrary to virtue, is what God despises and is most especially dominant in Satan, the ad- adversary of Christ. Well, pride caused Egypt's downfall and shame. Look at verse 12. The nations have heard of your shame. The earth is full of your cry, for warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. And here's the problem. There's no cure for the problem of pride. You go, well, I'm not proud. That, that itself is a proud statement. And, and that's, not, that's not just a wordplay. Pride cannot be cured apart from the saving grace of God in the renewed heart. 
And that's what's going on with verse 11. Go up to Gilead, take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain have you used medicines, there's no healing for you. Egypt is famous for their their medical arts and skills, the best in the world. And Gilead's where you get all those resins, all that medicine comes from the land of Gilead. And God says, none of it, when it comes to pride, it's not going to work. Neither skill nor medicine, it's total depravity. It's the effects of the fall. You are corrupt. You are a rebel against God in the very core of your being. It is only God who can deliver you from this root of all human downfall, and he does it by grace, grace that humbles us under the gospel mercy offered through faith in Jesus. Let me ask you, have you confessed your sins and trusted the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus? Well, if you have not, Is it not pride that keeps you from admitting what everyone knows about you, namely that you are a sinner? I also am a sinner. Just carry around the Ten Commandments and just look at it every ten minutes or so and see how you're doing. The answer is poorly. So why won't you say, Lord, I've got a problem. You're a holy God. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. And and, and listen, when when the Bible says, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should have everlasting life. Why don't you just say, well, that's what I need. I receive it because of pride, the rebellious pride. And Peter warns, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He advises, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the right time he may lift you up. First Peter 5, 5-6. Well, referring in the second half to this invasion by Nebuchadnezzar into Egypt, the Lord specifies his retribution. Look at verse 18. As I live, declares the king. Again, it's God who's doing this. I says, the king speaking. Well, who is the king whose name is the Lord of hosts? Y'all, the, that's what he's saying. Y'all, the real king. The actual sovereign is the true and living God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And the disaster is being inflicted again by God in wrathful judgment. That's this theme we have that's so true today. And yeah, he refers to Nebuchadnezzar here. It's actually, again, this is just first-rate Hebrew poetry. Like Tabor among the mountains, like Carmel by the sea, shall one come. Now that one here is Nebuchadnezzar. A Tabor particularly is a, it's not that high a mountain, but it is compared to the surrounding terrain. It sticks up like this mighty thing in the air. And he says Nebuchadnezzar is going to come down like a titan. Don't even think about defeating Nebuchadnezzar when my hand is upon him. He's the one I'm sending in judgment against you. And that's exactly what happens. By God's will, he strides down in power. He works God's judgment. Egypt, love verse 19, you should maybe consider packing your bags. They should, be, they should prepare their baggage for exile. Memphis shall become a waste. Now notice here how the judgment and condemnation of God so heavenly involves a devastating humiliation. It's not just physical punishment. It's not just death. It's actually disgrace. It's shame. The nation in verse 20 is compared to a beautiful heifer. Now, a heifer is a rather vulnerable animal, pretty valuable, particularly to be sacrificed. That's what's going on there. Oh, so much for the pride of the Nile. Oh, you're, 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 you're so great. You're really ripe to be slaughtered. That's not, they, that's not what they were saying. That wasn't in their PR package. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. It's not what you want to hear about your mercenary army. So much for their pride. 
And then the heifer, Egypt, is going to be stung, verse 21, by an irritating gadfly. A biting fly from the north has come upon her. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Now that's interesting because it shows that it was not God's purpose to actually destroy all of Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar is just going to come down and, and hammer them and destroy their northern area. It's like a heifer that's being a swarm of gadflies and it's pain and panic that is in fact historically what happened it wasn't a total conquest it was just a blow that made this point egypt's vaunted army collapsed verse 21 yes they have turned and fled together they did not stand for the day of their calamity has come upon them the time of their punishment Verse 22 mentions the serpent slithering away. Now the serpent, you know, think of your Egyptian, your classes in elementary school. The serpent was the symbol of Egyptian sovereignty and dominance. The, the Pharaoh's crowd had a serpent on it. All those mummies are decorated with serpents. And he says, you're just going to slither away. Away you go on your bellies, is what the Lord says, mocking them. But your enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord. Verses 20, 20 to 22 to 23. He's going to change the metaphor. It's going to be like a locust plague that drops down on you and this destroys everything. Here's your humiliation. Verse 24, the daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. Well, Egypt had raised its head in pride and suffer the humiliation of shame before all the world at the hand of the Lord. And my friends, this completely accords with the biblical teaching of the final judgment. And then it will not be Pharaoh from ancient times, the ancient nation of Israel, of Egypt, I mean. It'll be you and me. It will be the entire world. All mankind will stand before the throne of God for judgment. And the question then will be, did we or did we not humble ourselves as sinners? Oh, we are sinners. Did we not humble ourselves before the holy God, humbly receiving the grace he offers through his son, the Lord Jesus, and in the blood of his cross. You see, for the proud who will not confess their sins, who will not admit, I must be saved, I I need Jesus Christ, he alone can save me. For those proud unbelievers, God's word of judgment, this is how Jesus tells us what he's going to say, it drips with scorn, depart from me, you cursed, they will hear on the day of judgment to come, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Well, it may seem surprising, but the final and fourth theme in this chapter and all the other oracles against the nations conclude with the hope that is revealed in the grace and mercy of God. And even more surprising is the fact that this hope is offered first to Egypt, Look at the final section in chapters, verses 25 to 26. The Lord declares his sovereignty. He announces his punishment against the false gods and proud kings of Egypt upon Ammon of Thebes, Pharaoh in Egypt. He will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and his officers. And yet, at the end of verse 26, there's an offer of life that will follow. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in days of old declares the Lord. And the Lord says he's going to punish, but not yet destroy Egypt. He's going to give an opportunity for repentance in a later day. And that day came. 
That day came. It came when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came to the land of the Nile. And many believed and were saved. We have brothers and sisters. We have churches, faithful churches in Egypt along the Nile to this day, believing the gospel. In fact, during the early centuries of the church, second, third, fourth centuries, there were four centers, patriarchies of Christian faith of the church. And one of those patriarchies was in Egypt. Alexandria. In fact, we did the Nicene Creed earlier today. That comes from the Trinitarian controversy of the fourth century. And who were the champions of orthodoxy, of the deity of Christ and the biblical doctrine of Trinity? The Alexandrian church, Athanasius of Egypt, was behind all this. And God has grace for those who are guilty in the world. Phil Riken is right when he says it's not just about Egypt. But the ruler and judge of all the nations also is the savior of all the nations, even Egypt. And God especially is the savior of his own people. And so this oracle concludes with a message of hope to the exiled Judeans. Verse 27, but fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be not dismayed, O Israel. God's people should be encouraged by the mercy extended to those outside the covenant, how much more will God give mercy to his own who repent? And God afflicted people in every generation. In every generation, the people of God are afflicted. But then we see that God is stronger than those who are stronger than us. God judges the wicked. That's why Judah's going to be exiled when we get to Babylon at the end. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's reign is going to be, his line is going to be cut short. And that's how the exiles come home. Verse 27, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid. Uh, Judah's judgment and exile, it turns out, was different on God's judgment on other nations outside his covenant. Verse 28, he says, I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. You see, God's ancient promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob must be fulfilled through Israel in the church. By no means, he says, will I leave you unpunished. He disciplines his wayward church. But we see the sovereign might of a Lord who works justice and mercy in the world. Our anxiety rests in his grace. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. Well, let me wrap this study of this chapter up by making what I think is the most natural application of this promised mercy because it comes through Jesus Christ in the great commission that he gave to his church. This, I said earlier, this oracle displays the radical sovereignty of God over all the nations. And how does Jesus begin when he commissions the church? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus gives us the great commission after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is now sovereign over all nations. And he commands us to extend the message of judgment and mercy with the gospel call to believe and be saved to all nations so that God's grace would be heard. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, Matthew 8, 28, 19. And then the Great Commission concludes on the same note of solace to a weak and afflicted, fearful people feeling like exiles in the world. We feel like we're a ghetto. We're, we're pushed out. We have no power. How can we proclaim the gospel? He said, I'm with you. 
And Jesus says to us at the end of the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, I am with you even now to the end of the age. So our anxiety rests in his sovereign grace. I am with you even to the end of the age. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jeremiah 46, not an easy chapter, but yet again, Lord, very rich. And Father, we see here that you are the Lord, that the nations are not in control. The political powers talked about in the media are not actually the ones governing our age. But Father, we tremble to know that you judge a nation. You judge people who flagrantly cast aside your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would motivate us evermore, that we would send forth the message of your grace. So there might be repentance. There might be forgiveness. There might be a restoration of salvation blessings. Father, remind us that Jesus reigns and he is with us. Oh, give us zeal to spread the good news. We pray in his name. Amen.